This is a Federal News Network podcast. We begin today with looking at the economic impacts of NASA's programs. Not just in states where major facilities exist, the agency says the benefits can be felt in every state in the U.S. To show its work, it's released its second-ever economic impact report. To find out what it contained this time around, I spoke with Margaret Voschoss, NASA's chief financial officer. So we have just unveiled our second economic impact report for NASA. Uh, We did the first one two years ago in 2019, and so we're looking forward to maintaining this uh, cadence of issuing Uh, our economic impact report every two years. And the real uh, intent of putting these reports out and sharing them with the public is to provide a different uh, perspective on the benefits that NASA provides, not just in all the exciting science and space exploration and aerospace work that we do, but to um, bring it more to a down-to-earth perspective, so to speak, on how NASA investments contribute to Uh, the United States' economic competitiveness and our prosperity. So we're excited to share that broader message um, on how NASA's investments impact our economy. Now, I hate math, so I'm not going to ask you for the formula, but uh, Uh can you you tell me a little bit about how uh, you all calculated the economic impact of, you know, said program or just, you know, having people employed uh, with you? Absolutely. So the I'll say the the simple formula we tried to use, and of course the modeling that went into it is far from simple, (laughs) uh, but could be described as our total economic impact. We um, took the direct effect. So think of that as in FY 2021, NASA had an enacted budget of about 23.3 billion. How did we spend that money as in our direct effects? That includes salaries for our government employees. That includes um, the money that we send out the door in our acquisitions. And then we also had our friends at University of Illinois at Chicago uh, put that data into their economic models to allow us to then calculate our indirect effects. So that might be, you know, when we spend um, money in our acquisitions, how do those partners then further spend money to help support NASA objectives? And then that last piece uh, is the induced effects. And that would be, you know, say um, the salaries we pay out to our employees Uh, The model is able to um, estimate the impact of those dollars flowing to the economy. So I'll go back to our total economic output, which for 2021 is $71.2 billion uh, from our enacted budget of $23 billion is the sum of the direct effects, the indirect effects, and the induced effects. Yeah, and you and this report is pretty comprehensive. You broke it down by state and by program. Um, what is you, you know what were the intentions there of trying to show you know hey there is a real world effect when we're trying to go to the moon or trying to do things that may not necessarily look like dollar signs right away. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the past, NASA. I, I mentioned this is our second report, but NASA in the past we've done great work especially at our center levels, putting together some of those local stories of economic impact from investments uh, surrounding a certain center. And we realized it makes such a more powerful story, a more comprehensive story of the benefits of our investments from NASA to look at it through every every investment that we have. And that encompasses all of the centers, that encompasses um, headquarters. And so, um, that just provides, I think, a more complete picture that that uh, sums up to the $71.2 billion worth of economic output. 
Yeah, and this may be out of your, I guess, scope of, you know, what you're in charge of. But, you know, in the past, you know, dollars are getting tighter and tighter, especially when it comes to budgeting. Um, You've got congressional overseers who are always looking for, okay, you know, tell us why this is needed right now kind of thing. Um, What can you tell me about how this might be used for trying to get future um, budgetary information out there or um, getting help in, you know, kind of fundraising for (laughs) to Congress and those who hold the purse strings? Sure. I think uh, it just provides uh, that richer perspective on what does a dollar invested in NASA provide. And so we are seeing about like a three to one return on our uh, appropriations. And this this estimate of our economic output uh, is likely a conservative one. Uh, we are, you know, through this model, able to include just those traceable business transactions that occur in the economy. But there are so many other benefits to NASA that have an economic impact that we couldn't include. So a great example of that is uh, NASA develops technologies that we transfer to our partners. Um, we're not able to, in this model at least, capture what those um, those external or spillover effects into the economy are. Or as I immediately asked uh, some of the folks on the team uh, looking at the methodology, this doesn't include, for example, every person wearing a NASA t-shirt. Uh, that is not something that we would trace, but uh, you can imagine if you were to add that the economic impact here is likely a modest reflection. Yeah, you're as a CFO, what do you see as the status uh, as of NASA's brand, both nationally and internationally uh, when it comes to things like uh, T-shirts and uh, other things like that? You know, I know that the CFOs are a little bit more number crunching, but, you know, what do you what do you see as from the business side of things is where you all stand from a PR standpoint with that matter? Insofar as I was amplifying the impact to our domestic economy, we've also highlighted in this report all of the wonderful international partnerships we have. You know, many folks are well familiar with our International Space Station that represents 15 nations and five space agencies. And we try to also capture in the report uh, the impacts we have to the international economy as well. So I think our our uh, our brand with our partners is alive and strong. Uh, they're important to our ability to um, do the important things that we do, both on the aeronautic side and on the space exploration side. So um, we uh, have tremendous partnerships with uh, our industry and international partners. Obviously, NASA being the space agency, um, and there's been a great, big growth in the commercial side of the space technology and space industry itself. Um, what does this report have to do with, you know, where those dollars are going and how much money is spent in the private sector now as direct investment into space travel? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, in this report, we estimated that there's been over $15 billion in private investments in just space startup companies in 2021. Um, the majority of these investments have been made in U.S. companies, and NASA is uh, in uh, not a small contributor to that overall. So uh, we are very excited about what we are seeing in our uh, burgeoning space economy and how we are able to help catalyze the growth in uh, the U.S. space sector. Yeah, not going to make you go through all of the programs because, you know, we only have a few minutes. But um, let's just get a big view of the some of the major programs, uh, the Moon to Mars campaign. Um, you know, you, you all outlined what the impact, economic impact of that has been. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Um, so uh, when I shared the overall economic output for NASA was seventy one point two billion dollars. And let me also not forget that that contributed to um 
almost 340,000 jobs. Uh, what we did is then we took those numbers and we focused on our Moon to Mars campaign, which is a major objective of NASA to return American astronauts to the moon and then onward to Mars. Um, so within that figure, uh, our our investments have supported more than $20.1 billion in total economic output for Moon to Mars and uh, supported 93,700 jobs. And that includes just the variety of programs and projects uh, that NASA encompasses to, to support our Moon to Mars campaign. And let's also talk about, you know, the new green economy that is being supported fully by the Biden administration. And I'm sure NASA has a big hand in the climate change aspect of things and how uh, there are new jobs sprouting up from that industry. Um, What does this report have to say about NASA's contributions to that industry? And this is the first time that we've taken that snapshot of the impact of NASA's investments on climate change research and technology. So we're very excited to share these data. And I'll uh, mention folks that may have seen in the news, we had a wonderful um, climate uh, news highlight where we have this wonderful instrument called the MIT, had been launched the International Space Station with the intent of looking at the effects of mineral dust on on, uh, our global climate. And we found uh, that it's actually able to spot methane super emitters around the globe. So that's just one example of how NASA is working to uh, both observe the Earth and uh, the environment to be able to provide those data to our uh, climate decision makers and and the public. Um, But with with, uh, our 2021 numbers, we have found that we are supporting $7.4 billion in total economic output for climate change research and technology in support of 37,000 jobs. And that spans the work that we do in earth science, in aeronautics and advancing green aviation technologies. Uh, we have work in our space technology area looking at um, more, um, uh, more carbon neutral forms of energy and power, and also the work that uh, we do in our construction areas and with our um, state and local partners. Yeah, obviously, you know, the bigger the states that had the biggest economic impact are places with the famous uh, NASA facilities there, you know, JPL, Goddard, and obviously the Space Coast down in Florida. You know, but people may not know that that certainly that there is an economic impact that NASA plays in states that you know, may not necessarily have a burgeoning space industry. Um, were you, you know, interested in finding out just how many state or fascinated in just finding out how many states were affected by NASA's uh, own programs? Absolutely. And thank you for highlighting that, Eric. We were very <laughs> pleased to see, and this was consistent with our first report also, that NASA's economic impact really touches all 50 states. And that is both uh, with the jobs created as uh, directly and uh, indirectly and induced, and, and those economic impacts are felt around the country. So um, uh, it's a, a wonderful reminder that, yes, NASA's impact isn't just those states uh, where our centers reside, although certainly we have uh, pronounced economic impacts there, uh, but truly the investments for NASA are supporting the entire U.S. economy. So the plan you said is to do this just about every two years. Um, And so this is a self-imposed audit almost, right? Or not really an audit, but just kind of seeing where the state of things are. You know, what what went behind that decision to to keep track of things on a two-year basis like that? Yes, that's a great question. You know, we don't uh, we don't expect too many changes uh, on an annual basis uh, to justify an annual look. Uh, But every two years seemed like the right cadence just to. Uh, see, are we seeing um, 
and a an approximate similar trajectory of economic growth. And I would say between 2019 and 2022, we certainly saw a growth in that economic impact. Uh, no surprise, there was also an increase in our budgets between 2021 and, and uh, 2019 that was commensurate with that increase. And so I think it's like a good um, vector check. Are our investments um, having the return that we have uh, analyzed in the past and do will those continue? Um, so I think of it more as a a good vector check on the value of NASA's investments to the economy. And now, if you don't mind, I'd like to just point the spotlight back on you a little bit there, just because every job that is in NASA is unique because it's with NASA. And so being the CFO of NASA, what can you tell me about some of the unique roles that you play in maintaining a, a, a budget for a, an agency where you're not really necessarily going to know how much something is going to cost uh, and the programs can last for decades almost? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Well, uh, I am so honored to have joined uh, the NASA organization in uh, August of 2021. I was uh, confirmed by the Senate in late July and sworn in to NASA in this role um, on August 4th. So I have about a year plus under my belt. And what I have found here is uh, I am working among uh, outstanding experts for which uh, justifying our budget, developing our budget, and describing the impact of what we do really is a topmost priority for all of the leaders at NASA. Uh, and so it has been a wonderful experience and quite the learning curve to get to know the NASA budget and how we are justifying um, our, our uh, budget requests and proposals to all of our stakeholders. Uh, you know, I think I would just reamplify how excited we are to share the story. Uh, we've had such a wonderful year at NASA so far, folks, of course. I've likely seen the first images from the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, folks saw uh, a short while ago that we were able to demonstrate that we could change the trajectory of an asteroid through our DART mission. Um, I mentioned the climate work we're doing and, and EMIT just being one example of the importance of the climate uh, mission to NASA. I think, again, being able to tie that story together in uh, this in in this perspective and talking about our uh, contribution to the economic competitiveness and prosperity um, of the U.S. economy is a great one that I'm excited to share. And um, yeah, we look forward to sharing these results in two years from now. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with an, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, 
I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I 
had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time.